Hello and welcome to the Chosen Daughter podcast with me, Maz O'Connor. I'm a singer and a songwriter and this podcast is a series of conversations that I recorded with artists about their work, their process and creativity in general. In this episode, I'm talking to Lizzie Nonnery, who is a writer and a musician from Liverpool. And I think if you're interested in playwriting, you'll find this particularly useful. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm Lizzie Nonnery. I'm a writer. That's kind of the simplest way of saying it. I write lots of different things, um, plays for theatre and radio, and I've done a little bit for screen. Um, I write songs, poems, stories, and I also perform sometimes. I sometimes perform as a musician, singer, and perform as a poet sometimes as well. Okay, cool. Um, so you introduced yourself as a writer first. Was that where it began? Did you begin writing and got into performing later? Um, I always had an ambition to be a writer. It's not a particularly interesting thing to say that I always wanted to do it and knew I was kind of compelled to do it but it is true and I started writing songs really early though from when I was about 12 I used to write lyrics and I didn't start playing anything until I was about 14 when I started doing guitar lessons so it was all melodies sung out loud and scribbled lyrics but I had notebooks and notebooks full of them um, and then when I was 17 I started playing at acoustic nights and it was really formative. I kind of knew it at the time, but it's only in hindsight that I can appreciate what a huge impact that had. I was really nervous and shy as a teenager and it was um, a thing called Acoustic Engine that a musician called Steve Roberts used to run. Um, He was a great songwriter himself and he ran it with a guy called Dan Dean and they did these acoustic nights all over Liverpool so I went to one in McGull where I'm from and they were just so encouraging I think I played two songs in a very nervous manner but they were saying well next time come back and do four so I had like a deadline and I was sort of working on two new songs and I used to kind of feel sick all day when I knew I was going to have to get up and play these songs but I just did it enough I was kind of coached through that process to the point where I wasn't afraid of it anymore and then they like gave me a half hour slot so actually it's kind of incredible that I got that opportunity to sort of work through um, nerves about presenting my music I suppose I mean, I'd always sung in school hymns and things like that you know in receptions and it's not that that was frightening but there's something about presenting your own song that you've written and these, these kind of private ideas that needs an awful lot of confidence I think that goes for any kind of writing the confidence to say here it is it's from me it's worth something Mm. is actually it it takes a lot Mm. Um, and do you think that's what the nerves are about it wasn't about if you'd have been singing covers you wouldn't have been so nervous I think so yeah I probably would have had some nerves still about I'm going to drop the guitar or play the wrong chord but I think also I had kind of anxiety around success or failure as a performer and Steve Roberts was great for kind of coaching me through that I remember really clearly him saying to me it's not about winning or losing you know you're not you haven't failed if you if you play the song wrong Mm. or if you stop halfway through and forget the lyrics 
we're all here sharing something and it's about a, a longer process than that and that's such an obvious thing but such an important thing and again applies to writing a play or writing a short story that feeling of um, asking yourself to that, that um, I'll try and say it better that perfectionism mm. can be such a killer to creativity that if you're, you're aiming for something polished and presentable and finished and you, you're always frightened of showing the process then actually you could stop writing or performing completely so it was never even start you know if you think like you say the outcome has to if you had this idea in your head of what it has to be it has to be perfect or it's not worth anything or you've failed mm. then you probably would never even start to write anything yeah completely and it's it's all wound up in ego isn't it that if you have this idea that you have to be the best or somehow, you know, as a writer, you get wound up in ideas of, you know, being the inspired genius artist, it's all really crushing because the flip side of that is, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> what yeah. if I'm not the best? What if I'm not a genius? Yeah. And, and actually, you just have to kind of approach it like a worker, I think. Mm-hmm. Think about the craft of writing, craft of writing a song or a play or your stage craft as a performer. Um, focus on what you're actually making and doing yeah. and try and forget about whether you're making a mark on the world, where you are in some kind of scale of other writers or performers. Right. It's really hard, isn't it, to do yeah, that? Yeah. But I and think did, did it's you, important. That sounds like um, a place, obviously, that you're at now, but was that something, was that a process to get there? Do you remember feeling that you did have to compete or that you did compare and that you learned not to? Or do you think it was those open mic nights... All that time ago that got you there. I think the perfectionism is something I have to combat all the time because it's just in my personality and I have to be aware of it and stop myself and try and think in different ways. But I've always been all right at not not directly comparing and competing. It, it's not that's not um, my measure usually. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of setting my own private standard of what something should be rather than looking at anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it only creeps in when you start to think, right, how old am I? Where am I up to in my life? What are my contemporaries doing that I'm not? Oh I think goodness. that can happen to everybody. Yeah. And, it, and that's actually maybe something I've had to combat more in the last sort of five years. Like past, mm. past 30, basically, you start to think, oh, right, all the things I was going to do by this point, have I done them? Have the people who were on a level with me when I was 20, in some sense, yeah. have, have they now got plays on at the national and why isn't that me all those kind of questions but they're so unhelpful it's really not in any way useful thinking there's no value to it so but when you do find yourself thinking that how do you get out of it I think you just have to try and turn it back into creative impulse and again forget that idea of am I good enough it's like well I have to turn up to work I have to write the next play I have to write the next song just do it get on with it, I'm a worker, and focus on a creative ambition, I suppose, rather than a kind of a personal ambition. Yeah, 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 I get that. I, I kind of, because I'm, um, I mean, I'm not getting close, to, I suppose I'm getting close to 30, but like I'm going to be 28, and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, okay, that's 30. And <laughs> I've got people in my head that, um, you know, they they kind of like made it as a musician, like age like, 
29 or something and I've always had those in my head as like well you know that didn't happen for them until they were 29 so that's fine because I'm 27 or something and then as it's getting closer I'm like oh no but that's gonna be but then like how what are you going to do with that feeling except feel shit about yourself like there's Mm -hmm. no it does just kill creativity and what I try and think now is like I just want to make this next album because I want it to exist Mm -hmm. and I really really believe in it and I also want to write one day I want to write this musical that I've got in my head about this story that I really care about beyond that who knows I don't really care Mm. but as long as I can do those two things I'll feel you know satisfied fulfilled in some way Mm. maybe that's another stick to beat myself with I don't know but no I think that sounds good that's like discipline and setting yourself creative goals I think that's the only way to do it um that creative goals rather than like I want to sell this many whatever or I want yeah. to have a show on here or whatever it's like actually I just want this thing to exist because mm. I believe in it yeah. yeah I think as a songwriter getting the songs out there to people was always part of the creative goal you know you write them to yeah. be heard so that does kind of get muddled up then in kind of career ambitions yeah. but it's really helped me putting the music into plays and feeling like there's this other route through which audiences experience the music and enjoy the songs and, you know, whatever kind of ideas I was putting into the lyrics, they're kind of, they're circulating in a different way. Yeah. So I've, I've definitely had a real feeling of relief, kind of release of tension from when that started to happen. So that's been in the last five years as well with um, Narvik and my play The Storm and then this, this new play as well to have to shoot Irishmen. Um, and a couple of others actually um, along the way that that takes takes away the, the dissatisfaction I might have felt about by now I wish I was playing big folk festival audiences yeah. playing two big folk festival audiences I, I definitely used to have that that kind of unrest inside me mm. that I'd wanted a slightly different journey as a folk singer I suppose Mm. as a singer songwriter I'd wanted to get to a point where I could reach more people and actually now all that's gone I kind of feel like I've I've worked out a path for the songs that doesn't have to be about me performing them all the time and I'd love to to do more of that I'd love to write for other people if that was possible as well for other artists so that's because it does get mixed up like you say because you you do you want them to reach people Mm -hmm. Um, which is a great impulse because it's about connecting and that mm. sharing but when you're the performer of the work that inevitably means that you then need to have a higher profile in order to achieve that mm. and sometimes it gets a bit mixed up like hang on which one am I chasing here and <laughs> yeah. they, ca- they kind of get become the same thing but one of them is corrupting and one of them isn't and mm. I don't think it's very good for you <laughs> no, <it's> um, <laughs> so you mentioned um, that you were um Writing and then also songwriting, um, mm. and then now the two are, are combined in your plays sometimes. Yeah. Is that right? It is, is right? yeah. I didn't really answer your original question. What today. was my original question? <laughs> it was about what I started doing first. Oh, yeah. Um, but the playwriting came in when I was a student, and I'd always been really into drama at school, mm. um, but it hadn't really occurred to me to write a play until there was a student competition in my uni. So I kind of wrote play really quickly about being a student and it was a little bit funny um, and that one or it was one of the winners of this this 
student competition and we, me and some mates did it in Wadham College in their theatre and then we took it to Edinburgh that year and that was just loads of fun. I think if it hadn't been, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have wanted to carry on writing plays. But also, again, about feeling lucky, looking back, I got to explore so much there with no pressure on it whatsoever. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't in a place where I was trying to make a living from it or even thinking of myself at the start of a career. I was still a student. I had all these friends around who just thought it was a good laugh to be in a play. Mm. You know, didn't worry about being paid or anything like that. Yeah. And then we got to go in front of audiences for a, a proper long run in Edinburgh and I got to sit in these audiences and actually I was in the play so that's not true but <laughs> from the stage I got to kind of judge the, the response of these audiences and think oh yeah that bit worked really well and that bit were, kind of falls flat most nights so why is that um, but it was okay to really to, to acknowledge that certain aspects of what I'd written weren't working mm. because no one was expecting me to meet any kinds of any kind of standards. Did you have any kind of mentor or were you just, just doing it yourself? Just doing it myself, yeah. Um, I had a, a friend of mine called Lucy Burns who directed it, who now works for the BBC making documentaries and she was pretty great at like helping me shape the script. But we were just two students, you know, like 19-year-olds, yeah. which yeah. at the time we thought we were quite, quite grown up, but looking back that seems incredibly young. Um, but then after that, I joined the Young Writers Programme at the Everyman in Liverpool and then I really did have a mentor, the literary manager there at the time, it's a woman called Suzanne Bell, who's now at the Royal Exchange in Manchester and she ran this Young Writers Programme, like 10 or 12 writers, we used to meet every week and it was kind of the ABC of playwriting, like right from the basics up, but we all wrote plays through the year and we all shared them. And I could talk for longer than I should about all that because it was just so instructive. I really came out the other end of it knowing how to how to begin to yeah. make a career as a playwright and to, how to do it on the page. So um, you were thinking at that time you wanted to make it a career? I was, yeah. I, yeah, I must have had a good time in Edinburgh with that show because yeah. I did leave uni thinking... Not only I want to be a writer, which I'd always known, but I want to be a playwright. I want to Did write you know scripts. what that meant practically? Did you know how people made a living from these things, or did you know anyone in the in the scene? Or only when I joined this group. Yeah. So really quickly, I got immersed in all that, and that was two thousand and four, which was a really exciting time in Liverpool because it was the run up to Capital of Culture, and a lot was happening, and there was funding around and. Um, the Everman and Playhouse had just got a new artistic director, Gemma Bodney, who's still there. She was actively trying to revive the Everyman as a new writing theatre. So her and Suzanne Bell together were looking for people like me who were desperate to do it. Mm. Um, so I kind of got caught up in this moment, really, and I did have this creative community to help me understand how to do it and how it might happen. But I, I didn't, you know have any other examples <laughs> beyond people I met then of playwrights I just thought I was going to get on with it and do it I remember asking Suzanne how long will it take for me to how long would it take where I to get a play on the Everyman 
what's the time scale and they're saying about four years from the from the concept to the staging yeah from our conversation we were having at that moment she's like about four years from now and that that was when I was I hadn't quite finished uni I went in to have a chat with her so but I don't think I was discouraged I was like right okay at least I know what it is that's solid you know and I'm and I'm talking to exactly the person who can help me do it yeah and it was about four years it was um 2007 then that I had a, a play in the Everyman Intemperance and it's not that she made me any kind of promise. No, no. <laughs> it was just kind of a, a, a lucky journey from that point. But I, it's it's funny, and I, I look back, and it's almost like another version of me. I was so so driven and blinkered and and decisive. I think I'm much more anxious and questioning of myself now than I was yeah. then. Actually, yeah, yeah it's it's odd. I probably didn't seem that way at all. I probably seemed like a sort of gibbering mess of a 21-year-old, you know, I was still, like, awkward in conversation. But I had this kind of, like, core belief that I could do it. Really? Do you know where that came from? I don't. I don't at all. (laughs) What did your parents say when you said, I want to be a playwright? Um, They were encouraging. I remember my dad saying to me, we were sitting in the garden, and him saying, well, try and do it for a year. That's not long enough, Dad. And see if if anything's (laughs) happening. Yeah. And then, you know, if it's all not happening at all after a year, you you could get a a job, a proper job. Um, But no, it was a good... We shouldn't say a proper job. No, we shouldn't. We're doing doing proper (laughs) jobs. I mean that in a positive way. Um, I know it was was long enough that by the end of that year, I'd, I'd written a play and through that young writers group and it was given a reading in the Everyman, so... So I could invite my mum and dad and it was, you know, script in hand, but it was on a stage. And I also um, started doing part-time work yeah. in, the, in the Everyman as well. So I was, like, doing box office and stage door to start with and then I was Suzanne's assistant for a while, well, for about three years in the end, doing photocopying and things like that. Yeah. So I'd kind of um, set myself up in that world and could just about survive really cradled by that institution um and I lived with a couple of mates and had an amazing time really like those couple of years yeah (laughs) sounds so nostalgic but like pre-2008 life was so cheap as well you know (laughs) like like I mean as it didn't cost very much to live before the crash as well we used to me and my two friends like three girls living together we just like pull our money not very much of it and we we were fine (laughs) we ate you know we didn't eat particularly healthily but we ate and we went out and we paid our rent I I just think being like a a teenager in the 90s (laughs) riding this sort of wave of optimism into the 2000s was using the word luck don't I it was incredibly lucky if I think of what young people say who've grown up in the 2000s as teenagers have to have had to deal with the kind of anxiety in the air mm. maybe that maybe that core belief I'm talking about is partly due to having kind of come into adulthood at a time of real optimism yeah. and possibility creatively and politically in the country as well yeah, yeah and there had been I suppose a push to get people into the arts who weren't from traditional, traditionally artistic backgrounds like mm. in the 90s, right? Wasn't that a thing? Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> Schemes and funding mm. and all of that stuff. 
Yeah, I was, I was definitely brought up to to believe I could do things. And I would, one thing that's absolutely true of my upbringing, and I think this is from my dad, is an idea of you shouldn't waste anything, like any talent, any ability, yeah. like whatever it is, pursue it, don't throw it away. Mm. So in that sense, I was really encouraged. It was like, well, if you have got something, if, if you have got some ability as a writer, then we should all kind of crowd around that and make sure that you can fulfil that yeah. without any kind of um, sentimentality. I, th- I think that was the, the feeling. Yeah. Hello, it's me again. Hope you're enjoying the conversation with Lizzie so far. Just wanted to let you know in this next section, we talk about some specific works of Lizzie's. The Sum, which was a musical on at the Everyman in 2017. Narvik, which toured in 2017. And To Have to Shoot Irishman, which toured in 2018. So I want to ask you a little bit about your um, process. Mm. Um, It may have changed, I suppose, over the years, because now you've got a family and more responsibilities and stuff but if you are if you're starting um a project that's all right there's just teacups being um <laughs> it's hard not to make noise um if you were starting a project um, say you have an idea for something um well let's just talk about that how do you know oh that's an idea is that a weird question um i think the the reality which is probably the same and for you as a songwriter, is you have loads of ideas, but only some of them stick. Yeah. That I'll, I'll, you know, any day of the week could have an idea for a story or a character and think in the moment, oh, that's interesting. But then there's a natural editing process that goes on, I think, in our minds before we even write anything down that sorts through those ideas. And I tend to just become fixated on a, on certain things yeah. and then I have to see the writing process through it's almost like it goes out of my hands um, what do you mean? that I can if I if I kind of hit upon a, a question or, or sometimes it's like a, an image on stage or a theme that I feel like I just really have something have some kind of passion attached to yeah even not even have something to say about necessarily at the start but have some kind of anger attached to that theme or something that I feel needs to be exposed that it just um it starts to dictate to me and I feel like I have to start writing and, and work it out and work it through yeah. does that make sense yeah kind of yeah no no it's really exciting do you when you say like now I have to I have to write this down or I have to do manifest it in some way what what happens then is it um does it take the form does it take a form immediately or is it just notes or I think I'm quite lucky with the theatre writing and the writing for radio I do that there is a structure to that process that's imposed by other people um so if I've got people on board with an idea like for radio, I will have pitched an idea to a producer and they will have then pitched it to a commissioner who, if you're lucky, goes for it. You're then given a time scale. Um, so I'm then going to work out in that time scale how do I find time to do the research? How do I do the research? How much writing time am I going to need? And So actually it becomes quite disciplined in that way quite quickly. Um, 
theatre's a bit looser because timescales are longer and looser and you can sometimes feel like you're working on something forever and no one's going to commit to putting it on the stage yet. But there's still um, someone that you're checking in with. There's a dramaturg or a director yeah. who wants the next draft from, from you who's going to give you notes on that draft, Yeah. who's going to then push you on to the, the next draft. But how do you know if, if you get this idea that you feel passionately about and how do you know if it's for radio or for theatre or a song? Um, I suppose I'm... I'm st- I kind of start with the with the parameters. So songs are a little bit different. They just they just kind of turn up. Um, that I'm I'm always playing with melodies and lyrics in my head, like like little puzzles. You probably do that as well. That and again, lots of them you just throw away. Yeah, you realise like, oh, that's yeah. already a song. Yeah, <laughs> but you just think, that's you know what? That's really cheesy, or like it's. It's there's not there's no way to go with that. It's like a interesting it's line that I've got. Nice but there's of bars, but there's, there's yeah. no journey that extends from that. Um, and then some some songs kind of survive going round and round in my head. So I pick up an instrument and try and work them out. Or sometimes now I'll just write whole songs without an instrument, just vocally, and then and then sort of put the the instrumentation on top. Um, so that's more of a free kind of process. When I'm writing songs within plays. Um, it's slightly less free because I'm thinking about what would the characters say at that moment? Mm. What can they say through song that they can't say through dialogue? Yeah. Or how can a song intervene that tells the audience something new about the themes or the offstage story? So there are diff- really different requirements then. So if the songs for the plays, they, don't, they would come um, within the writing process of the play. They're not kind of pre-existing or independently existing pieces of music? With Narvik and To Have to Shoot Irishman, that was the case. To Have to Shoot Irishman's got some traditional ones in as well, yeah. but for all the original ones, that was the case. Um, as in they, they came when you were writing the... Yeah, yeah, kind of script and songs were developed together. Right. Um, with the song that was on at the Everyman last year, it was a mix I'd kind of um, been writing a lot of socialist songs, songs about um, debt as a theme, and then it's not accidental that I became kind of fixated by this story about debt that I wanted to put on stage as well. Um, the, the thing that... I sound like a mad person, don't I? No. <laughs> the thing with the song was I had this... I read an article about people selling their hair Oh yeah, I remember that um, song. The, there was a there was a song where she's going to sell her hair, right? And it, she wasn't going to sell her hair, but she was saying how much is this part yeah, of me yeah. worth, and how much is yeah. I love song, that song. Song's called "Smile and a Knife." Yeah, um, and it was saying that traditionally, um, hair extensions had come from India and China, and at the point when I was reading, which is probably about two thousand and ten, more and more those hair extensions were coming from Britain because British women because they needed the money with selling the hair and I just had this image of a woman cutting her hair off on stage just like the symbolism of that yeah. um, and it was one of them that just wouldn't go away mm. so kind of simultaneous to that I'd been writing songs like Smile in a Knife already existed um, and 
I had an EP called Songs of Drink and Revolution, which was all about socialism and kind of drink in a loose sense. That it was the, the idea of kind of getting around the pub in the around the table in the pub and planning a new world over right. a drink. Yeah. So um, that all kind of connected together so that I had about half the songs already that I realised these characters can sing. Yeah. But then I had to expand on that and think, what else would they sing? What other moments do we need? Right. That character doesn't have a song yet. That must What's be such an exciting feeling when you realise, like, ah, this can all be one thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think that it probably does sound... It probably sounds like a muddle, what I'm describing to you, because it is. And I don't really have a, an ordered process... I could tell you how it happens every time yeah. for, a, for a script, definitely not. I just kind of start and some, somewhere out of all the scribbled notes and these images I've got in my head that won't go away, you just, I start to form a shape. Yeah. And usually, if I've got time, I would just batter a first draft out and try and just get it all down on paper, mm. everything that's kind of bubbling out. And then take a step back and try and be more objective and try and see that play as an audience member would and that's when I'd get more mechanical and technical and yeah. I'd probably do a plan before draft two which is like scene one these things need to happen these emotional points need to be hit yeah. um, and then even if as I'm writing things change which they inevitably do you've kind of got the play in miniature mm-hmm. and you can treat it like a puzzle and move the information around yeah. because it is ultimately all about information about what you tell the audience when mm-hmm. why you tell it to them at that moment and at that moment um, and how you structure those journeys for characters and therefore structure a journey for the audience so it starts with a big flurry of emotion and a kind of a confusion that I've learnt not to worry about yeah. <laughs> you just kind of got a little burning instinct that there's something there and then it's kind of a tidying up process that happens yeah. so by about draft three you've got something clear mm. it's beginning to be clear and you can start to ask a question like what's the central question in this play you know what what is this really about um, and I, when I teach writers workshops I always feel like it's important to say that kind of thing that new writers, I'm sure I was the same, have that perfectionism, you know, that desire for the words to come out perfectly, to, be, to fall beautifully onto the page. And actually giving yourself permission to make a mess is so important with any kind of creativity, I think. Um, but it's very brave, I think, because it's you kind of, I imagine you have to show those drafts to people, do you? Sometimes, and it really depends on the process, um, as in depends who you're working with, yeah. how much you trust them. Um, for instance, working with Box of Tricks, I would show a draft early on, even if it's a total mess, because they've got a particular kind of commitment to a commission. They really, it means a lot to them as a small organisation yeah. to have commissioned writer. So they're not going to throw that script in the bin lightly. 
And also it's kind of a relationship that me, me and Hannah have got. It's Hannah who's the director, um, who directed Narvik, where I kind of trust that she knows what I can do. And if, if I'm not there yet, that's okay. Yeah. I'm not trying to impress her in that sense, which is very helpful creatively. Yeah. But, for instance... If I've got a commission for a company I've never worked with before, I probably wouldn't give them draft one. It'd be more like draft two or three. Yeah. And I have had a real, like, kind of bad moment where I, I handed in the first draft that was a bit of a mess and I've kind of regretted it ever since. Um, I think it's something that I've learnt over time, that you have to judge those things. Yeah, so, um, so what is your relationship with feedback and, and criticism and in general. I mean, I know it depends who it is, but mm. um, do you... Um, I suppose one question is, are there particular things that you always think they're going to say? Like, is there a thing in your head that you're like, that's, that's my insecurity that kind of more often than others rears its ugly head and if I give them this song or this piece or whatever, they're going to think this? Or mm. does that... Do you get that or not really? In a useful way, you know when the criticism is right. And, you know, your insecurities about the script may well be truthful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, You might just know that you haven't nailed a certain moment or that mm. a certain character, you know, isn't developed enough. So when someone says it back to you, it, it chimes and that's helpful. Um, it's just part of the writing really the feedback and it is always slightly nerve-wracking to sit down with that script in front of you that you even though it's a mess you love it and you've poured part of yourself into it and you kind of brace yourself to hear what someone has to say but it would be absolutely impossible to write it otherwise um, mm. so it's always just about looking for the constructive feedback and I tend to write absolutely everything down that someone says to me about a script in a meeting like just scribble away the whole time and then afterwards sort of look at it more calmly and think you know actually underline that note and that note those things feel really true and I've definitely got better at it because it isn't easy and it's it's endless as a playwright I think you know, a novelist has an editor and gets feedback, obviously, but from what I know, talking to prose writers, they don't quite go through the same endlessly public exposure of their work. Yeah, you know, yeah. it starts with these one-on-one -on -one meetings, so, you know, with just a couple of people giving you notes, and then you're doing a workshop. And, like, last week I was in Manchester working um, on a new play with Box of Tricks where five scenes that I'd written in the fortnight before almost yeah. and then um, two brand new songs were shown and then I kind of read out the story for the bits in between I hadn't yeah. written yet and then got feedback immediately after from oh, an audience and I enjoyed it though and yeah. it's, it's odd to have got to a point where I can enjoy it and also it's a massive um, time saver in the process mm. it's incredibly useful you go away thinking of course I need to change that journey for that character and it's not even necessarily the feedback, it's just hearing it out loud. It's like letting some air circulate around it. And then the feedback probably echoes that feeling you already have. But how have you learned to not let it knock you? Like you had to separate the work from 
whether you're any good. Like, mm. just because this isn't working, it doesn't mean that I'm bad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose that only comes from repetition, yeah. doesn't it? From having done it quite a few times. Um, that you can fall back on that memory of, of at that point in the process for the last play or the one before that. That's how it felt. The, the script was a mess and it felt like this. Mm. And I had moments of thinking maybe I shouldn't write it at all. Mm. Um, with Intemperance, which was the first play I wrote on my own, I'd co-written a play Unprotected in 2006 as well. But with Intemperance, that just came out really and was such an easy process. And I got lots of feedback on it, but it was only, I think, four drafts, which is absurd. I think we then tweaked it a little bit in rehearsals and it went to, like, six. But it was so so quick and um, maybe I'd just been living with those ideas for such a long time, that kind of, like, first play, first album kind of feeling yeah. where you can put everything you've always wanted to put in a play. And in you're it. still really young, like you say, and you have that kind of mad confidence of youth <laughs> yeah yeah totally um, but then the, the player next after that which was called the swallowing dark um which eventually went on in the playhouse studio and in theater 503 and um, that was so hard and it, it took a couple of years and a million drafts or i think realistically you know 16 drafts or something yeah. because i didn't have that confidence that you're talking about and um, that comes with repetition it was the first time I'd ever focused on the process rather than it just kind of all falling out of me, you know. Um, and then I kind of froze up because of that. I started to ask exactly that question that you're saying. If this isn't working, maybe I'm no good, you know. If this isn't working, am I no good? Can I not see this through? Can I not fix this? Did I only really have one play in me? It's such a big, horrible question, isn't it? Um, but then it's never really felt like that since. I've never had such a complicated emotional relationship with the script since. How did that one turn um, out? It was great in the end. People liked it. We got good reviews. Um, it's been revived in America since. Um, so I was really proud of it in the end, but it, it wasn't really about the play. It wasn't really about the script or the, or the um, particular themes or characters. It was me as a writer where I was up to at that point and that kind of crisis of confidence that came from analysing how I did it um, the, uh, analysing it for the first time as in the, the first time you when you did Intemperance you didn't really analyse you just did it no I've, I've, I'd obviously read a lot of plays seen a lot of plays so it was that lack of self-consciousness when I was yeah. writing that so quite carried me along yeah. yeah and then inevitably the more you understand about um, dramatic structure and yeah. how plays can work and should work, the more self-consciousness can creep in. So I think what I was going through with The Swallowing Dark was a, a process of trying to balance those two things, trying to have that knowledge, gain more knowledge of the, the mechanics of script writing, I suppose, but then find a way to push that to the back of my brain and just be in the moment and be creative. And trust that, that stuff is, is there. Mm. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of... I think hopefully got got past all that now and the feedback therefore is just part of the the humility you really need as a as a script writer definitely where you just have to be open to the fact 
that it's not working at, at any point in the process. Mm. Like right through rehearsals, you have to be ready to go, yeah, throw that line out because the actors tried it three different ways and it just doesn't come across or rewrite that monologue because it's not saying the thing I thought it was. Mm. That actually, a bit like part, a big part of being a good actor is knowing how to communicate and collaborate and leave space for other people in a rehearsal room. Part of being a good writer is being able to put your ego to one side and enter into a collaborative process and continue to edit and think on your feet and absorb other people's input. Like Actually, that is talent. Do you know what I mean? Without sounding like I'm flattering myself, I think it's yeah. kind of talent that you learn over time. By being in those situations, you work out how to be most useful and effective in those rehearsal rooms yeah. and workshop rooms and then how to take what you've learned in those situations back to the script. Yeah. Um, and we, we keep ending up talking about ego, don't we? But the second that you ha- let your kind of precious side enter in and think, but I love that line too much, I can't cut it, you're actually damaging yourself because you that line's going to be said on the set stage and if everybody in the room thinks it doesn't work, it probably doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's the old kill your darlings mm, thing. It is. And I, I tend to not delete. I tend to, like, cut and paste to and another file. Keep it in another bag so somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't feel too painful. I know. every day do you work every day or do something vaguely related to work every day yeah um lately because my own company has produced my latest play the some of those things linked to work haven't felt very creative which has been right been a bit exhausting Admin um, stuff yeah but it's temporary it's like getting the the company off the ground yeah. and it, you know it's it's time invested in being able to do more creative stuff in the future that's exhausting though it can be it's when really you just want to be a writer in a process and I found myself obsessively staring at spreadsheets yeah. you know checking that the budgets are working it can be exhausting but I also don't want to complain about that because somebody has to has to take on yeah. that role um and it's the first time I have because usually I'm working with another company, other people are in those roles, I get to just be the creative and it's been really useful seeing the whole process and how everything intersects actually, mm. that you know there's no point having a play unless you sell tickets and you can't sell tickets if you don't you know, work out how to describe this play yeah. to audiences in a way that's exciting, that you know, marketing can seem so, like, horrific to artists, but actually it's 
really tied up in the work we're doing all the time. It's um, but having said that, <laughs> it'll be nice not to think about marketing yeah. quite soon. Um, there are some parts of it that are creative, are there? Some parts of the producing things in yeah. terms of having to think about um, how you like. Um, it's slightly different, but promoting yourself as a musician, I tr- I try and find the creativity in it as like mm. the visuals. How yeah. Yeah. you know how are we going to present this visually, and what's the website going to mm. look like? And like you say, if I had to condense, if I had to describe what I make in one sentence, how would I do it? Like mm. you can actually turn that into a creative task, yeah. um, which is then which then reflects back on your work in quite a useful way, like you say. Mm. So there can be things about it that are vaguely creative yeah no they can it's not why you went into it is it it's not but like with this show I got to work with a filmmaker on making a promo and I wrote the script for it and you pulled lines out of the the theatre script that the actors would say and then thought about what images he'd use so all that was loads of fun and really creative Um, and yeah there have been parts parts of it that have felt exciting in that way Um, but usually you know Setting that aside, because that's kind of a new experience, I would I would write every day or have maybe a meeting about the project. Um, and my, my problem is trying to have days where I don't do any work. It's really? that thing of it being, of being self-employed. So it's hard to put the boundaries in place and things kind of spilling over into... It's so hard to ever feel like you've done enough. It is, yeah. There's always that that other thing that you could be putting some more hours into and moving things on, um, and I think that also shows that I really love it as well. You know, I, I really try hard not to work on Sundays at all, and it sounds sounds really like cheesy and awful, but really by Monday night I'm thinking it'd be good to sit down at my desk and do some writing. <laughs> by when? But sorry, by Sunday night. Oh yeah. yeah I'm yeah. thinking. Yeah, I'm ready for this now. I've, yeah. I've had like a really busy family day, and now I, yeah. I'd quite like some peace and quiet and some time with my own thoughts. Yeah, put some stuff on paper. Do you have paper. like creative habits in terms of like do you do morning pages or do you keep a diary or is there something that you do every day regardless or is it just different every day? No, it is different every day. I kind of wish I was a little bit more structured in in that way, but I find that because I'm doing lots of different types of projects, things just keep changing. Like um, today, just before this, I had a meeting about a project I'm working on called City of Light, which Liverpool Lantern Company are doing. They're going to light up Sefton Park nice. in the night. It's going to be amazing. Um, and it's all work themed around displacement and migration. So me and three other writers are going to run writing workshops with all kinds of different people, um, like with groups of the elderly, homeless people, asylum seekers, in prisons. So it's, it's wow. really exciting. Yeah. Um, and then we're also, we're going to write our own responses to those workshops. Um, so I might write a poem or a story that will then form part of this event. So that's a really particular project. Yeah. And I probably don't have loads of time at the moment, but I just really desperately wanted to do it. So I thought, well, I'll make the time. Um and that means that I had to you know, sit there for two hours today, chatting with other writers, yeah. working out what we want to achieve. Um, whereas I'm also starting work on a radio series, and a lot of that is going to be me ploughing through 
research. Um, it's all about a journalist in Malta, so I'm going to be reading her journalism for a long time <laughs> before I start to write. And then the writing process, there'll be some interviews that I do. I'm going to think, um, without going into detail about that project, I'm going to interview people that the journalist knew. Um, but mostly that's just me, me sitting at my desk and making sure I can allocate hours to, to write. You must have to be incredibly organised to do everything that you do. Because a lot of it's going on at the same time, right? Yeah. I always have this idea I'll get to a point where I can just do one thing, oh but God. it never, ever happens. <laughs> it's just not how life works when you're self-employed, is it? Things just all happen at once, or not at all, it seems. Yeah. Um, and I've become really organised. I'm not naturally... I really wasn't as a child. I was like the child who'd never have a pencil. Yeah. Um, and I still find it an effort. I have a diary and I can't have a diary on the computer or the phone because the digital information means nothing to me. I have to like handwrite it. And it just every week becomes this mad sprawl of information um, because I have to write down absolutely everything I need to remember or I won't yeah. remember it. Yeah. I, my, my brain is like a sieve, so I have to be really, really on top of things. And I sometimes feel like the moment I relax, something goes wrong. <laughs> I have to, have to keep thinking all the time. Hello. You're all right. I'm just doing this with you. You know, sit in your chair and be very quiet. I've just got to ask you one two more questions. Is that okay? It's Maz's watch. What time is it? What time is it? Don't know. Don't know. Oh, oh. might have been compromised a little bit okay. <laughs> um, which is just would you have um, if you could give a bit of advice to 17 um, year old Lizzie it's six o'clock is it? <laughs> no <laughs> oh yeah and or to any 16, 17 year old young artists out there young writers mm. what would the advice be? I think don't apologise for yourself when I look back I wish I Someone had said that to me. And it's something I think about a lot at the moment, that women are conditioned to undermine themselves socially. That's how we're conditioned. Um, we're, we're kind of brought up to think people will like us more. Mm. If, we, if we start a sentence with, I don't know, but... Yeah. Or if we say... Or, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> sorry to interrupt or sorry to talk over you, but... Um, you don't mind interrupting, do you? No. Um, so that would be my main advice, to, to believe that you have something to say and even if you don't believe it... Tell you know, yourself it. Yeah, look, look people in the eye and put your shoulders back and have the confidence to put your point across because you're living in a world of men who are faking it. Yeah, <laughs> just fake, fake it just the same yeah. as them. Yeah. You have a right to compete. 
the, thing, the things you have to say are valuable. I really am talking to my 17-year-old self. I know, now. I, wish, I wish I'd had that. I feel like 17-year-old me knew that, and then 22-year-old me lost it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the bullshit teenager knew all Mommy, that. Mummy, it's recording well. Is it recording it is. well? It's looking Thank good, you. isn't it? Now, Henrik, it's time for your question. So I'm going to ask you a very special question. Okay. If you could be any kind of animal, what kind of animal would you like to be? Um... Monkeys. A monkey. I love monkeys. <laughs> Why? Because they got silly. Because they're silly. Because they're silly. Yeah. It's fun to be silly, isn't it? Yeah. Good answer. Thank you very much for answering my question. Thanks for being on the podcast. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to say to the people? What do you want to say? Say, so, see you next time. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lizzie. That's okay. I hope that last one is in some way useful. <laughs> thank you to Lizzie and to Henrik for talking to me. And thank you to you for listening to this episode of the Chosen Daughter podcast. Thanks also to Greenwood Side for the help and for hosting the podcast. The music you can hear in this episode is an instrumental version of Finer Than I, one of the tracks from my new album, Chosen Daughter, which is out now. I'm also going on tour. I'm coming to London, Bath, Birmingham, Cambridge, Barrow, Sheffield, Cardiff, Milton Keynes and Walton-on-Thames. More information on my website, mazoconnor.com. Do keep in touch with me on social media. I am at mazoconnor on Twitter and at mazoconnormusic on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you. Bye.